One of the thrills of our summer series, it gives us the opportunity to have folks in to speak and become friends here at Colonial and strike up friendships. Last summer, Dr. Robert Smith joined us here in our summer series for the first time. And he's been in contact with some of you throughout that time since by email and whatnot. He left a, a, a great impression on the ministry. And when it came to inviting speakers for this summer series, he was at the top of the list to invite back this year. And Pastor Stephen said, let's get him back. He, he's had a significant impact here in the ministry. In case you've forgotten, let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Smith. He flew in, by the way, yesterday. He lives in two places. He flew in from Cincinnati. He's on his way to Birmingham, Alabama. He graduated from college and went on to seminary in Cincinnati, went on then further to seminary at Southern Baptist Seminary where he graduated. After seminary, he became the pastor for 20 years at New Mission Missionary Baptist Church in Ohio left there to go on to finish that doctorate while he was pastoring at the same time at the Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, and taught there for a while. He was the professor of Christian preaching at the Southern Seminary at Louisville, and then was asked to become the homiletics and preaching professor at Beeson Divinity School where he teaches now. Let me tell you a little bit more. He's a contributing editor for a study of Christian ministry in the African-American church. Preparing for Christian ministry is that magazine and co-editor of A Mighty Long Journey. He has written probably his most well-known book is Doctrine That Dances, Bringing Doctrinal Preaching and Teaching to Life, a 2008 publication that we use in our seminary as well in our homiletics and expository preaching classes. That book was selected as the 2008 Preaching Book of the Year Award by Preaching Magazine and the 2009 Preaching Book of the Year Award by Christianity Today. In 2010, Preaching Magazine named the book, Doctrine That Dances, one of the 25 most influential books in preaching in the last 25 years. Dr. Smith's research includes interests in the place of passion in preaching, literary history of African-American preaching, Christological preaching, and theories of preaching. At Beeson, he teaches Christian preaching. He's received the Beeson Divinity School's Teacher of the Year Award. He and his wife, Dr. Wanda Taylor-Smith, she was with us last year, but she's not here. He's on his way to Birmingham. They have faculty meetings starting tomorrow all week. Then he flies back to Cincinnati, keeps a very, very busy life. But they are the parents of four adult children. I'm sorry that she couldn't be with us today, but in his busy schedule, he's heading down there alone. But we need to make him feel welcome while he's away from his wife. Would you help me welcome Dr. Robert Smith to the pulpit of Colonial this morning? Amen, brother. Amen. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God be praised. What a blessing it is to uh, see you again and uh, to worship our God and to participate in what is a continuing dress rehearsal as far as uh, worship is concerned. We are preparing for what we will do for eternity. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. To Pastor Dr. Stephen Davey 
in his absence, Sister Marcia, we understand the assignment with their child in terms of um, enrolling that child in college. We're grateful for that. I know what that's like. We're empty nesters now, and we've had to do that, so it's, um, it's certainly understandable we will miss him. Thank you so much, Dr. Burgraff, for your kind introduction and for your continued hospitality. John chapter 11, verses 1 through 17, I want to treat that during this service and then next service, John chapter 11, verses 18 through 45, and we'll see what the Lord does for the third service. John 11, I want to ask you a question. Have you been to Bethany? Have you been to Bethany? Hear these words from the word from John 11, 1 through 17. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent a message to Jesus, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. Rather, it is God's glory so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Accordingly, though Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, after having heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, The Jews were just now trying to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Those who walk during the day do not stumble because they see the light of this world. But those who walk at night stumble because the light is not in them. After saying this, he told them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will be all right. Jesus, however, had been speaking about his death, but they thought that he was referring merely to sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. For your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Thomas, who was called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. I want to contend, I want to convey that Bethany exists in order to give birth to belief which will be transformed into redemptive activity. Would you say that with me today? Bethany exists in order to give birth to belief, which will be transformed into redemptive activity. That's why John wrote the Gospel of John. He reserves his thesis, his proposition, until the next to the last chapter, John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31. Many other miracles, simoins, signs, did Jesus of Nazareth, which are not written in this book, 
But these things are written that you might believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and in believing you might have life through his name because Bethany exists in order to give birth to belief which will be transformed into redemptive activity. Seven Samoans, seven signs, seven miracles in the Gospel of John. He performed more, but they were included in order to transmit belief. John chapter 4. It is the healing of the nobleman's son. John 2, the turning of water into wine. John 5, the healing of the paralyzed man, the infirmed man. John 6, Jesus walking on water. John 6, Jesus turning a lunch meal into a wilderness banquet by taking two fish and five loaves of bread and feeding 5,000 men, not counting women and children. If there were 5,000 men and every man had a wife, that's 10,000 people. If each couple had two children, that's 20,000. And they had 12 baskets of fragments left over after 20,000 people approximately had been fed. John chapter 9, the healing of a blind man who had never seen the rose in his purple purity, nor the lily in its crimson splendor. John chapter 11, our miracle today. The raising up of Lazarus from the dead. Many of the miracles that Jesus of Nazareth, which are not written in this book, but these things are written that you might believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And in believing, you might have life through his name. There is a crisis in Bethany. The word Bethany means house of the poor, or as some argue, house of the afflicted. And the name Lazarus means the one whom God assists, the one whom God helps. There is a crisis in Bethany because Lazarus, who needs help, is afflicted in the house of the afflicted. We are told five out of the first six verses in John 11 that Lazarus is ill. Verse 1, Lazarus is ill. Verse 2, Lazarus is ill. Verse 3, Lazarus is ill. Verse 4, Jesus said, but this illness is not unto death. It is for God's glory in order that the Son of God might be glorified through it. Verse 5, Lazarus is ill, yes, but Jesus loves Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And verse 6, Even though Lazarus is ill and Jesus gets the word that he's ill because he's mentioned as being ill, verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, and verse 6, that he shows how much he loves Lazarus, Mary, and Martha by staying where he was two days. Now, if you don't get the idea that Lazarus is ill after hearing John say he's ill, verse 1, he's ill, verse 2, he's ill, verse 3, he's ill, verse 4, he's ill, verse 6 then you don't know what illness is. The brother is seriously ill. He's in the intensive care department. And Jesus shows how much he loves Mary and Martha by staying where he was for two days because he has a way of redeeming by restraining and delivering by delaying. You don't wait until you get a call at 2 o'clock in the morning 
saying that if you want to see this person alive, you better come now. You don't wait and go three or four days later. You leave right then. But Jesus wants us to know as well as he wanted Mary and Martha to know how much he loved Lazarus, so he stayed where he was two days. Because Jesus is not in time. Time is in Jesus. You can't hurry God. No, you've got to wait. You've got to trust him and give him time, no matter how long it takes. He's a God you can't hurry. He'll be there, don't you worry. He may not come when you want him, but he's always on time because he's not in time. Time is in him, and he controls time in order to carry out his purpose. That's what he did with Abraham and Sarah. Abraham was 75 years of age and Sarah was 65 when God made a promise to them in Genesis 12 that you're going to have a son. 25 years later, here comes Isaac. And he comes at a time when Abraham is old and the Bible says that Sarah is postmenopausal. Do you know what that means? Postmenopausal? There is nothing there to produce a child. And so the Lord waits until there's no physiological possibility for reproduction so that there could be no mistake that is not some kind of, of thing produced by medical science. It's not luck. It's not just a coincidence. It's not an incident. It is not an accident. It is providence. And God steps in and does what no human being can do. Have you any river? that you think is uncrossable? Do you have a mountain that you can't tunnel through? God specializes in things that seem to be impossible and he will do what no other power can do. Have you ever been on your bed of affliction and the doctors have done all that they can do? In fact, I think if I took a poll that someone would stand up and say, you know, there was a time when the doctor said that I would never walk, I'd never speak. Some said I'd never live. They even gave me so many months to live. I've lived the doctor that gave me that terrible diagnosis and offered that want, that terrible prognosis and here I am living right now. God specializes. Never put a period where God has put a comma. He is the one who steps in time and does what only he can do. And Jesus delivers by delaying and redeems by restraining and can afford to stay where he is for two days because he's the answer to every question And he is the cure for every illness. Verses 7 through 10. Jesus says to his disciples, let us go again to Judea. And the disciples offer a protest. Lord, you were just there the other day and they tried to assassinate you. That's true. Back in John chapter 10 verse 31, uh, there were Jews when he was in that area who took up stones and they wanted to stone him. They wanted to assassinate him. And the disciples are thinking... Now, if you go back there, your life is in jeopardy. But they're thinking beyond just themselves. They're thinking, and if we go with you, our lives are in jeopardy. Because self-preservation is the first law of nature. Don't go back there, Jesus. And he reminds them that the Jewish day is divided into two 12-hour periods. Uh, 12 hours during the day, there's daylight. And there's 12 hours of uh, darkness during the nighttime. He says, if a person will walk during the day, that person will not stumble because there's light. 
But if that person walks during the night, that person will stumble because there is darkness. He is personifying darkness and light and saying, I am the personification of light. I'm the light. I'm not just talking about light. I'm talking about light. Because he says in John 8 and 12, I am the light of the world. The one who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but you have the light of life. And he says in John 9 and 5, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. He's saying, keep your eyes upon me and you will not stumble. Otherwise, if you wait until it gets dark, you will stumble because I am the light of the world. He's dealing with opportunity. He is saying, knowing that it's only a few days before he will be crucified, keep your eyes on me. You have an opportunity now, if you keep your eyes on me, to see God's glory and to see the Son of God glorified because glory will come through his glory, will come through his crucifixion and death. Opportunity is an amazing thing. It's like a bald-headed man with grease all over his head coming toward you with one plait of hair that's coming out of the front of his head. And if you grab that plait of hair while it's coming toward you, then you have something to hold on to. But if you wait until the bald-headed man whose head is all greased gets past you, you have nothing to grab on. There's something things that have to be done now. Victor Hugo has said and said rightly, there is nothing more powerful than an idea whose time has come. There is nothing more powerful than an idea whose time has come. If you miss it, when God moves, you may not ever have that opportunity again. It's now is the accepted time. It's in the day you hear my voice, harden not your heart. And you cannot procrastinate when it comes to the message of salvation and say, next week, I'll do it. While God has given you life, and as my mother and father used to say, while the blood is running warm in your veins, you need to say to God, yes, I believe. I believe that you sent your son to die for me, to be raised from the dead for me, who will come again for me, and I will accept you into my life to cleanse me by your blood, and to fill me with your spirit. It's now. A lot of young people in my day are different than the young people in my mother's day. When my mother and father particularly grew up, my mother has a seventh grade education. She's the greatest theologian and Bible teacher I've ever had. My father had a first grade education. He had to work uh, 11 months out of the year um, in order to support the family his mother and father and his brothers and sisters. They had a whole lot of desire, but very little, if any, opportunity. Young people today have a lot of opportunity, but oftentimes a little desire. Stop complaining, young people, about opportunities. You have them. Stop talking about I would. Stop being lost in the woods. W-O-U-L-D-S, if you will. I would be a better child if I had a father. I would be a better child if my mother was more attentive. I would be a better wife if I had a more devoted husband. I would be a better Christian if I had a better pastor. 
I would be more mature as a saint if I went to a different church. Get out of the woods. Start saying, like Paul says in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And it makes no difference what side of the tracks you've been born on. Stop blaming people. Stop saying this would be if this was not. Start saying, I can do all things. I can transcend anything. I can overcome anything. I can be victorious because I serve a God who is Christus Victor, the victorious Jesus who enables me. And those of you who are sitting here understand exactly what I mean. You're not where you are in Christ because somebody has laid something in your lap and you've been born with a silver spoon in your mouth. You've got to get to the place where you overcome and you stop blaming other people and say in spite of it all, I'm already more than a conqueror through him who loved me. Stop blaming others. Say with God all things are possible opportunity. Well, Jesus sees these disciples um, really don't quite get it. He moves on. And he says in the verses 11 to 16, he says, uh, we got to go down to uh, Judea and uh, wake Lazarus up. He's asleep. They think somnia. He's talking about literal death. It's what John calls double talk. In John, people think one way when Jesus is talking about something else. In John 3, he tells Nicodemus, the ruler of the Jews, you need to be born again. Not you need to. You must be born again if you're going to inherit the kingdom of God. And, of course, Nicodemus is thinking physiologically, uh, a biological reversion. Can a man who's old like me reverse? his movement and go back into his mother's womb and be born. And Jesus is saying, I'm not talking about physical birth. I'm talking about being born of the water and the spirit, born spiritually. And in John chapter 4, here's a woman who misunderstands Jesus. He says, if you really knew who I was, then if you asked me for water, then I would give you water. And it would not just be water. It would be a artesian a well springing up into everlasting life. She's thinking eight's too old, two hydrogen atoms and eight oxygen atoms. He's not talking about that. He's talking about himself. He's saying, I am the water of life. And when she discovers who he really is, she leaves her water pot at the well because she's already been filled with spiritual water himself. And in John chapter 6, they want some more fish sandwiches, and um, he's fed them with fish and loaves. And uh, Jesus said, I'm not going to give you any more fish sandwiches. Your fathers and mothers ate 40 years, uh, manna from on high, and they died in the wilderness. I am the bread of life, John 6:35. The one who comes to me shall uh, not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life, will not thirst and will not hunger. I'm the bread. I am the water. And I am the one who brings about regeneration so that you are born again. Jesus sees that they are thinking about sleep. He's talking about sleep, death, the kind of death. It's a euphemism that's used in the Bible. And the kings slept with their fathers, death. What Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when he says, we shall not all sleep, but we shall be change. What Paul was talking about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 13, my brothers, I write unto you that you be not ignorant concerning those who sleep, those who are 
dead. And what Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that people that inappropriately take the Lord's Supper, some of them get sick and some of them even sleep, they die. So he has to just break it down and say, look, Lazarus is dead. He is, um, he hadn't passed, he's dead. Uh, he hadn't crossed the bar, he's dead. He hadn't taken a vacation, he's dead. You get it? He's dead. And then he comes up with this strange statement. And I am glad for your sake that I was not there when he died. What? You've just got finished staying where you were for two days when we sent you an email that the one you love was sick. And now you're going to say that you're glad that we were not there when Lazarus died? How insensitive does this appear to be? But the truth of the matter is, Jesus did not have to be there when Lazarus died. Back in John chapter 4, verses 46 to 53, a nobleman, this is the second miracle of Jesus, came to Jesus and said, would you come to my house before my son dies? Jesus never made the trip. He just spoke the word. And when the nobleman got home, before he could get in the front yard, his servants came out to him and said, your son is healed. And he asked them, when did he get healed? About the seventh hour, which is one o'clock in the afternoon. And the nobleman reflected, you know, that's when I was talking to Jesus. It was a long distant miracle. Jesus could have just spoken and said, Lazarus, you're better. But he didn't. And he said, I'm glad for your sake that I was not there, that you might, verse 14 and 15, believe. Because Bethany exists in order to give birth to belief, which will be transformed into redemptive activity. He pushes the envelope and gets us right to the very edge of despair and destruction to see if we will trust him at one minute before midnight. When you're down to your last dime, when it looks like there is no recovery, that's when he steps in, just when you and I need him most. The truth of the matter is this. He didn't need to be there in order to heal Lazarus. The truth of the matter is this, that had he been there, death would have died because whenever the author of life, Jesus, meets death, death dies. It happened at name. A young boy is getting ready to be deposited in the tomb. And Jesus' entourage meets simultaneously with the funeral procession. Life meets death. And Jesus touches the top of the coffin and says to the boy, young man, arise. And the boy lives because whenever the author of life meets death, death dies. It happened in Mark chapter 5 where Jairus' daughter was sick and eventually she died. It seemed like he was interrupted by this woman who contracted this hemorrhaging uh, disease or hemorrhaging problem, complication, um, 12 years ago, the same year that this little girl was born because the little girl was 12 and this woman had been hemorrhaging for 12 years. So the little girl was born the same year that the woman began to hemorrhage. 
And Jesus um, was not interrupted. He saw it as an invitation. And he got there, and it seemed like it was late. The little girl was dead. Jesus goes into the room. The parents are there, and Peter, James, and John are there. And he says, Talitha kum, I say to you, young girl, arise. And the girl got up. Because whenever the author of life meets death, death dies. And Jesus said, the reason I'm glad I was not there when he died was so that you might believe, that your faith might be strengthened. Well, Thomas sees that Jesus will not be dissuaded and says in verse 16, let us also go with him and die. Now, Thomas, of course, has been given a bad name. The only thing we think Thomas is his first name and his last name is Doubt. Thomas Doubt. Uh, he, he really needs to be given a better reputation because he is a man who is very courageous and does not want secondhand religion. He will not believe unless he can put his hand in the master's side and touch the nail prints on his hand. He, he wants um, specific certainty and not some general report from a service that he misses. Uh, I think we ought to go back and um, give him a better reputation and clean up his resume more because if I'm in a foxhole and my life is in danger, uh, I really don't want Peter uh, who won't know me. I want Thomas who will be willing to die with me. Well, that's another matter. Verse, verse number 17, and let me end with that. Jesus finally arrives in the outskirts of Bethany, doesn't go to Bethany. We see him not arriving in Bethany until chapter 12, verse 1. He gets there, and the funeral has been over for four days. Those of you who want to pastor church and you want to stay at a church, you can't do that. That's not good pastoral theology. You can't miss the wake. You can't miss the hospital visitation. And you sure cannot show up at the funeral four days late. Jews buried their dead on the same day in which the dead died. And Lazarus has been entombed for four long days. Jesus can afford to wait four days after the funeral because once again, he is not in time. Time is in him. You can't schedule him by your calendar. You have to trust kairos, not chronos. Kairos is the Greek word for God's time. Not bull of a time, not timex time, but God's time. And he can even step in when time is no more because he controls time. Four days late. Why would he wait four days? I want to suggest, number one, before he raises Lazarus from the dead, he was aware of the superstition surrounding death. The Jews believe that if a person dies, that there was a possibility of the spirit reentering the body the same day the person died. If that happened, then it was not really a resurrection or really what was to be a resuscitation on the part of Lazarus, on the part of Jesus for Lazarus. The spirit couldn't re-enter the body the second day. The spirit could re-enter the body the third day. Jesus said, no, I don't want this to be any hocus-pocus, abracadabra, open sesame. 
I don't want people to think this is superstitious. I'm not going to raise him up the first day because they may attribute this to black magic and black magical arts. I don't want to raise him up the second day because they may attribute it to black magic. I don't want to raise him up the third day because they may attribute it to black magic. I'm going to wait until all hope is gone. And I'm going to show up on the fourth day and I'm going to call him forth. So people will know that this is a work of God. There has got to be some things in your life, some decisions that you've made, some moves that you've made, some deliverance that you've experienced. And you cannot attribute it to any doctor, any sociologist, any psychologist, any counselor, anybody else. You have to say, God did it. You've got to live to the place where you have to say, God did this thing. It's not luck. God did it. I can't explain it. Something happened and now I know he touched me and made me whole. You've got to know that you 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 know God did it. Can't figure this thing out financially. Can't figure this thing out physiologically. Can't figure out this thing socially. I can't figure out this thing relationally. God did it. And Jesus raises Lazarus or will raise him on the fourth day. I think he shows up four days late because he wants to illustrate once again that I'm not in time, time is in me. He is choreographing this whole scene. He is orchestrating it. He's controlling time. He waits four days before he arrives at the Bethany Cemetery because he wants to give time for Lazarus to die. I didn't say he wanted to give Lazarus time to die. I didn't say that. I said he wanted to give time for Lazarus to die because he's controlling time. We know that once Lazarus is raised from the dead, from that moment, the crucifixion is accelerated and the next thing on God's docket is crucifixion. So Jesus times his crucifixion with Lazarus' resuscitation slash resurrection. He has to give time for Lazarus to die. And we'll not let Lazarus die until it's time. I think that happens on the cross of Calvary. Here is Jesus. And here are two thieves. And both of them are critiquing and criticizing him until one comes to his senses and says, you know, both of us are here because we are criminals. This man is innocent. And then he looks over at Jesus, who does not look like a king, who has a kingdom. If you look at it right, he is naked. His visage is so marred, Isaiah says in 52, that no one would desire him. And yet he looks at him and says, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. And Jesus, I believe, says to time, stop. You can't take him yet. I haven't signed his application for salvation. Stop. I'm going to let you have it, but not right now. Don't you see two men are talking? Stop. And Jesus responded to, to that thief and said, today you will be with me in paradise. And in that moment, I believe Jesus has said, okay, Dad, now you can have him. Because he can choose time and nothing happens until his appointed time. He waits four days. He can afford to wait four days because he's the fourth man. 
Shadrach, Meshach, and a bad Negro are in the fiery furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar, chapter 3, knows that the persons who threw these boys into the fiery furnace, that the heat from the flames, not the flames themselves, but just the heat destroyed them, which means if just the heat killed them, then they would have been instantly cremated, even if they got beyond the heat, if someone else had not got in there before they got in there. And Nebuchadnezzar looked, and he was pretty good in math. He said, did we put in three men? But I see four, and the fourth one looks like the Son of God. Which means then that the only reason why Shadrach, Meshach, and a bad Negro were not cremated was that the fourth man got in before the three got in. They put in three. They brought out three. And yet there was one who remained in. Because if they put in three and there were four, the fourth one got in before they got in. And if they took out three, the fourth one remained in the fiber furnace. Why? Because he knew that these two fine-looking young men one day would have to go in the fiery furnace. This family would have to go in the fiery furnace. And you and I would have to go in the fiery furnace. And don't think it's strange when you take and encounter fiery trials. The fourth man is already in your furnace. So that you don't have to walk around in the furnace pouting, complaining, cussing, frustrated, you can praise God in your furnace because if worship is really real, that's really when you praise God. You can praise God here in the church and that's fine. Nobody's going to bother you. But when you're going through the crisis and you're in the crucible of suffering and things don't look well, you need to still say in your furnace, it is well with my soul. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrow like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well, it is well with my soul. If the storms don't cease and if the winds keep on blowing in my life, my soul is still anchored in the Lord. I will praise God in the sunshine. I will praise God in the rain. You praise him in the fire furnace and he stays in the fire furnace. Some of you haven't gotten there yet, but he's still there. He's waiting on you to cool the fire furnace and turn it into a summer resort so that you can not only exist but live in the fiery furnace and have peace in the midst of your storm and experience tranquility in the midst of your turbulence. He could wait four days because he's the fourth man and because sometimes he only comes to us walking on the water during the fourth watch of the night. And that's what he does in Matthew 14. He sends the disciples across the Sea of Galilee And the weather is fair, but a storm breaks out while he's on the mountain praying, interceding for them, and watching them row the boat, trying to keep it afloat. The Jews had four watches during the day, four watches at night. Four watches at night, 6 p.m. to 9 p.m., first watch. 9 p.m. to 12 midnight, second watch. 12 midnight to 3 a.m., third watch. 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., fourth watch. He waits until somewhere between 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., to come to the disciples, walking on the water like it's a moving sidewalk. I don't know why he waits that late, except this. He is not in time 
time is in him and he wants to see whether or not we will trust him in the fourth watch of the night like we'll trust him during the first watch of the day, which is 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. He shows up the fourth watch of the night and it shows up four days late. But when he gets there, as we'll talk about in the second service, he raises Lazarus from the grave. And Lazarus is able to sit at a table in John 12 without opening his mouth because his physical presence is a testimony. Have you been to Bethany? Because Bethany exists in order to give birth to belief, which will be transformed into redemptive activity. And one of these days, there will be no more Bethany's, no more houses of the poor in health and poor of mind and poor in spirit, no more houses of the, the um, house of affliction because there will be no disease. I close by saying this to you. No one will be like Lazarus. God is not going to let us come home with arthritis and rheumatism and cancer and diabetes. We will have a new body. We will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. And even the leaves on the tree will be good for the healing of the nation. So right on, King Jesus. Right on, Emmanuel. Right on, conquering king. I want to go to heaven in the morning. Let us pray. Father, thank you for our Bethany's. They are not convenient to us. They are not comfortable to us, but they are necessary for us. And I pray that you will help us to wait in Bethany and to trust you no matter how long it takes for you to come to our Bethany so that our faith can be strengthened and nothing will defy our faith in you. We trust you. We believe you. And we know that you're able to see us through. Help us in our predicament to know that you are present and that you can heal us without delivering us so that you sustain us in the midst of our crisis, that our faith might be a witness to your sovereignty and to your power. In Jesus' name.